0: We will continue our series in Acts this morning. I may next week take a break from that to preach some encouraging word about what we're uh, facing as a nation and as a church in light of the uh, coronavirus. Uh, But uh, I think it's good that we continue on pretty much as usual with as much normality as we possibly can. And so if you'll turn to the 12th chapter, verse 25, and we will read through verse 13 of chapter 13 of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 12, verse 25 through 13, 13. Now will you bow with me in prayer? Our gracious God and Father in heaven, With humility and reverence, we ask that this time in which the people of God of this congregation are gathered before the throne of grace in worship of the Lamb who was slain, even though most of us not present in this building, nonetheless gathered perhaps with family members, perhaps some alone, but not alone. We are all one people in Christ, and we believe that our prayers and worship will be heard through our great mediator, Jesus Christ. And as the word goes forth, may it enter into our hearts and may it transform our lives. And we pray that lost people will come to know Christ for it surely must be true that it may even be an increase in those who will hear the word even around the world as we have streaming here and in other faithful churches. Bless the preaching of the gospel around the world, all true preaching. Bless the extension of the Reformed faith through the world. And we ask, Heavenly Father, with with a deep desire to see the King of kings exalted, that this time in our country would be used to send that genuine, genuine biblical revival for which we have longed and so often prayed. And we ask these things that the word of the Lord may be enthroned in our hearts in the name of Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Now please take your copy of God's Word, Acts 12, 25 through 13, 13, and stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of God. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Minaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them And returned to Jerusalem." The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, of the many things for which I'm grateful in this church is that we have been made by the work of the Lord within our hearts a missions-minded church. We really do care that God is glorified in sending missionaries around the world. We care about the lost. We care about seeing churches planted in parts of the world where there are no biblical churches. And in this text, we see how missions began. I mean, how missions began in the sense of the church in obedience to the Great Commission, sending gospel ministers to preach the word of God in a certain geographical location. This is a most significant event and I want us to look at it. The first thing we see is the first missionaries, the first missionaries. And this relates to the first three verses. The narrative begins at Syrian Antioch, the third largest city in the Roman world, next to Rome and Alexandria. The city was already three centuries old when our narrative begins that we have read this morning. Paul and Barnabas would have known its encircling walls, the bridge over the Orontes River and its amphitheater. It was a melting pot, and it was noted for its decadent morals. In the midst of this debauched city, the Lord established this strong Bible-believing church. So the contrast would have been stark between these Bible believers that gather for the worship of the Lord and the teaching of his word and this decadent, immoral city. And that's the way it should be. Is that true of this church? And is it true of our Christian lives? That there is a stark difference between the world and our Christian profession. Well, Christ blessed this church with many, many resources. And we read in verse 1 that there were prophets and teachers. Now, prophets, of course, was a foundational and temporary gift, but preachers and teachers continue until Christ comes again. And not only does the list show the international connections with Cyprus and North Africa, but Menaean actually grew up with Herod the Tetrarch. They ministered to the Lord, and the Holy Spirit made plain whom he was calling to a specific mission endeavor. And these are spiritual labors. There must be a divine call. And note especially the stress in this section on united prayer as we have seen it consistently in the book of Acts. The church gathering in united prayer, pleading for the success of the gospel as it goes out into the world. A union and prayer that should be a large part of what we do together here, and even when we cannot come together in large groups continuing in our congregation. They are sent by the Holy Spirit. This is made plain in verses 2 and 4. The Holy Spirit as is stressed as the great caller and sender of these missionaries, in this case to Cyprus. Now, I do not believe that this is the initial call to ministry of Paul and Barnabas. They already have been preaching and teaching the word of God recognized by the church, but nonetheless, the principles are applicable even to the call to preach. Maybe there's some young man, maybe sitting next to your father or mother on the sofa listening to this sermon at home right now, Uh, perhaps um, sitting in a chair Uh, Maybe within your heart you have been thinking for a long while, you know the Lord, you want to serve the Lord, maybe God is calling me to the ministry of the gospel. What do you do? Well, you continue to take that before the Lord. You begin to use your gifts in the church. You seek his will on the matter. You wait for the confirmation of the church because it is the Holy Spirit through those means that calls a man to the ministry of the word or a missionary to a specific part of the world. Clearly the church is the sending agency under the work of the Spirit of God. The teachers undoubtedly formed a presbytery because missions should be done by the local church and by the presbytery. What we see in this passage is great zeal, do we not? These are people who know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Paul saw the risen Christ. They cannot help but desire that others hear the good news that they have heard, the gospel message of salvation by grace through faith. And so the Spirit of God takes them, works within their hearts, and sends them out And so the second thing we see in the text is the first missionary journey begun. And this takes us to verses 4 through 6. The first missionary team, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, sailed to the Isle of Cyprus. Now, Barnabas is from that island. Perhaps later you will look on your maps in the backs of your Bibles. You will see where Syrian Antioch is and how close the island of Cyprus was. And Barnabas being from there would long for the conversion of his uh, fellow uh, citizens from that island and fellow uh, needy sinners from that island just as Paul in Romans 9-1 longed for the conversion of his fellow Jews. And at Salamis, which is where they land, which is the eastern part of Cyprus, they go first to the synagogue. The plural here is actually in the Greek New Testament. They go to the synagogues, showing us that this was a well-populated area with Jews. And they go there to preach the word of God. Do you remember how Paul puts it in Romans 1, 14 and following? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so as we work through the book of Acts, we see that Paul will be frequenting the synagogues first to proclaim the gospel and then moving on from there to the Gentiles. But once again, I hope that you will have noticed as we read this morning, the stress on, once again, Once again, the preaching of the word of God. God's ordained means for the salvation of the lost and the building up of his church. Spurgeon said, God has prepared a people wherever he sends a minister to gather them in. If they are Holy Spirit sent, he has his purpose in that ministry. And in taking the gospel to Cyprus, this team was taking the gospel into the heart of darkness. Cyprus was a thoroughly pagan and decadent place. But Salamis on the east coast had a large Jewish population. And at least the external morality would probably have been quite different than in other parts of Cyprus. These men did not want to go without being sent. They are sent and they are sent first to the Jew. And God prepares a people there in Cyprus. We'll read in a little while of Sergius Paulus that was given the wisdom to want to hear the word of God because the Lord is opening his heart. We'll say more about him, but God the sovereign is in this mission. And this is his plan. And this is the great encouragement in preaching and the great encouragement in missions that God sends and God prepares the hearts of those who hear and receive the gospel. But that does not mean that there's no opposition, and we see that opposition clearly in the text. The third point we see is missions opposed, missions opposed. Barnabas, Saul, and John Mark ministered through the isle to Paphos, which is on the western coast of Cyprus, that was a major center for Aphrodite worship. Now this is very ugly. I will not even begin to describe from this pulpit what Aphrodite worship meant in the ancient world. And Paphos is one of the major centers for Aphrodite worship in the ancient world. And there is Sergius Pallas, the Roman governor or proconsul, as he is called in the text. Now, Luke is very careful. Please notice as we make our way through Luke that Luke is very careful about a careful use of Roman titles. The critics used to question that he was proconsul and were fairly certain, of course, in their arrogance over the word of God that he was not until an inscription was found on the Isle of Cyprus that said he was. Well, he wanted to hear the word of God like the Ethiopian eunuch back in chapter 8. He is, he is a seeker after God only because the Lord is seeking him. No one seeks God unless God is seeking him and God is working in his heart. But one of his counselors did not want Sergius' Pallas to hear the gospel. He did not want there to be a challenge to his own position of power and authority next to this Roman proconsul, this governor of the island. Elymas, the sorcerer, opposed the gospel message and messengers and tried to influence Sergius Paulus away from the faiths He is called here a sorcerer or a magician, that is what his name means. As in Exodus where we have the sorcerers or magicians that oppose the work of God. Merle Unger says of them in the Bible, those that are called sorcerers or magicians, that they are especially endued demonic emissaries of Satan. In Deuteronomy 13, we find that those who among Israel were sorcerers were to be stoned to death. In Jeremiah 27, Jeremiah warns against hearing someone such as Elemas the sorcerer. But you'll notice in the text that it tells us he was a Jew, which means that he has completely set aside his understanding with which he would have been reared, what he would have heard in the synagogue about this great issue of life. He has disregarded the law of God. And he has the name Bar Jesus. Now you know that Bar is the Hebrew for son. And so he's calling himself the son of Jesus. Now it's certainly possible that the name Jesus was simply a word that, uh, that was somehow attached to his name, but I think that it's more likely that he is calling himself a son of Jesus. Here he is claiming to be a miracle worker. The word about Jesus, of course, is spreading far and wide. On the day of Pentecost and elsewhere, that word is getting around the Roman world, and so he identifies himself with Jesus As a miracle worker. So twisted is his heart that he wants to have an air of authority based upon the holy and righteous Jesus because of his miracle working. Now Spurgeon made, I think, a very interesting observation. He said, adversaries advertise the gospel and so spread it. Opposing work although in itself evil is wondrously overruled by God for the best purposes. The devil is growing a little wiser than he used to be, but he still remains a fool. For if he looked back over his own history, he would see that he has been the means of spreading the gospel by the attacks which he has made upon it. And isn't that true? that every time the evil one attacks the gospel, even though the attack upon the gospel is wicked, the Lord uses and overrules that so that the gospel is further spread. Elamus probably, by opposing the gospel, made Sergius Paulus more, not less, interested in hearing it. And so the wrath of men shall praise him. And all of those things in this world that are evil and opposed to the king of kings will be used of him ultimately for the fostering of the faith and the spread of the gospel and of his word. Well, we have seen missions opposed by Elymas, the sorcerer, but fourthly, we see evil denounced, evil denounced. And I would like for us to read again verses 9 through 11. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, that is, at Elemas, and he said, "'You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time.'" Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Paul then, again, on this mission, filled with the Spirit of God, Paul intensely looked on this sorcerer and brought this condemning judgment from the hand of God. By the way, be watching for this as you read Acts The look of Paul, this intense look, and also in various places the gesturing of Paul is pointed out by Luke throughout the book of Acts, just historical details. And so judgment is brought upon elements by God through Paul. Now wait a minute, Paul, you might think, aren't we supposed to be mild and not give offense? The gospel goes forth and we want people to, to, uh, to be drawn to this gospel, Paul, and this is not a, a very mild thing to do, is it, Paul? This was a rather offensive thing to do, wasn't it, Paul? Well, the gospel is offensive to the natural man, and Paul never softens the offense. In a case such as this, denunciation must be direct. And Paul stresses the theme of judgment in his Acts sermons and in his epistles. And one way that you can always know a false teacher or someone who is veering in that direction is that they eliminate the hard points of the gospel message. A recent presentation of the gospel by a well-known individual that I read never mentioned sin the whole time. They are softening the approach to the gospel, and in so doing, they are changing the gospel. And again I bring to you that quote from William Rushton that means a great deal to me in which Rushton said, every attempt to render the gospel more acceptable to men by softening down any of its offensive doctrines is itself an act of conformity to the world in the very worst form. And so when we soften the hard points of the gospel, sin and judgment and the wrath of God, without which we cannot understand our need for grace, then we have veered from righteousness and we have brought conformity to the world into the life of the preaching of the gospel. Nor should a minister constantly denounce. That's far from my point. But Elemas and Sergius Paulus are not treated the same in this passage. But denunciation is part of the church's calling too. It is part of missions too. It is part of the preacher's call, and it is part of the Christian life, too. And so I say to the children and young people of our church, and those who are with us today, and those who are are listening, that being kind and being gracious never means that we soften the hard points of the gospel. And there are times in which you are called to take a firm stand and to be willing to be different for the cause of the Savior who died for you." Now I'm very concerned with what's happening in preaching today, that the authoritative note is being taken out of preaching, that young men are being taught to chat from the pulpit, to have conversations, working on the edges of the text and not really expounding and expositing the text with all of its wonderful application. Well, note how plain Paul is to Elymas about his heart. Look again at verses 9 and 10. But Paul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And so he was full of subtlety. The word is deceit or treachery, actually the word in the Greek means bait for fish, and so he says to this person, you're you're acting like bait, you are deceitful, you are manipulative, and you're you're full of mischief, which is wickedness or malice, it could be translated. And then he calls him the son of the devil. Now I know it was first in our reading of the ESV, but in the Greek text it is second he called him the son of the devil. Second in order in the text, you're not bar Jesus, son of Jesus. You are the son of the devil, just as Jesus called the Pharisees in John chapter 8. Young people, the devil is the enemy of your souls. There is a literal, personal, evil one, and he is the enemy of your souls. He wants to destroy you. He says to Elemas that he is the enemy of all righteousness. He's an unceasing perverter of the right ways of the Lord. Now, this is the heart that Elemas applied to hindering this governor from believing the gospel. What do you think of someone who wishes to hinder another person? from hearing of Jesus Christ, who is the only Redeemer and the only Savior of sinners. And yet, through my ministry, I have known parents who have not wanted children to hear about Christ. I have known others who have, who have wanted to hinder people from hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think that God thinks of someone who wants to hinder another person? From being saved from your sins. Matthew Henry says, those who pervert the right ways of the Lord are commonly so hardened in it that though the equity of those ways be set before them by the most powerful commanding evidence, yet they will not cease to do it. This is frightening that our hearts can be so filled with a hatred of God and and a love of unrighteousness that even when the gospel comes and the word of God is proclaimed and the law of God comes to convict, a person can be so hard-hearted that he doesn't want to hear. And every heart is wicked and depraved. For all it is true that you must be born again because that is our heart outside of Christ. But depravity shows itself variously, and it deepens in experience. But we are all apart from Christ, capable of being as calloused as Elymas, the sorcerer. I wonder how often he had heard the word of God. I wonder with a name bar Jesus, if indeed there is a connection to Jesus that he is intending to draw, if he himself had heard the gospel. I don't know, but I do know this, that there can be people who grow up under the gospel message who turn it off and harden the heart, and the heart can grow harder and harder and harder as time goes by. And the contrast of the heart of Elymas and Sergius Paulus is something to note here. One closed and hard and the other open and receptive. In the fall of mankind in Adam, our hearts were altered. One writer has said... The spiritual, ethical operations of man's heart, mind, and will, the strength, were put into reverse. His knowledge became darkness and love of the lie. His righteousness became rebellion and iniquity. His holiness became aversion to God and impurity in all his various affections. Now this can take various forms, of course, and one is… is a bitter opposition to the good news of Jesus Christ which we're seeing increasingly in our culture. God then brought overt judgment on Elemas right there on the spot, right there. God judged him. Verse 11, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. The hand of the Lord, when Pastor MacDonald in his Exodus series deals with Exodus 7 verse 5, the hand of the Lord is the hand of judgment. Psalm 32 verse 4, the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord in judgment. Stuart Custer says the Lord demonstrated miraculously who could see the truth and who could not. He showed everyone that truth. This temporal judgment represented the darkness and the blindness of his heart, his opposition to the truth. And yes, there is truth. There is clear, revealed truth. And I shudder to hear ministers now talk about how how, there, how much gray there is. Uh, how how murky uh, it, the Bible is. Uh, there is so much that is uncertain. I've heard it twice this week. This is so very wrong. God has clearly revealed Himself in this word. And He blinded Elamus. Why? Elimus' deeper blindness is his spiritual blindness. He is Satan's agent, and the Lord is demonstrating that. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, "'But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them who are lost.'" in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now consider how mild this judgment is, how moderate the punishment was when we think of eternity. Jude tells us (coughs) of the false teacher, that he is the raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And by blinding Elamus, the sorcerer, God is simply demonstrating in that temporary blindness a greater judgment to come if he does not believe and repent and trust in Christ, and showing us all where darkness leads But it is not all darkness, thank God, in this passage. And the glory of it all is we see, fifthly, the first missionary convert, the first missionary convert. Now, the parable of the soils is shown here, good soil as well as bad soil, good soil made receptive by the Holy Spirit. There is nothing so frightening as a hard heart. Is that true of someone hearing this sermon this morning? Noling, a commentator, says the blindness of Elymas opened the eyes of the proconsul. We have this Roman governor. He is astonished at the teaching and he believed the gospel. The Holy Spirit opened his heart. God saved this Roman, this pagan Roman. Obviously, this well-educated, pagan, Roman, steeped in false worship, he saved him from his sins. Well, verse 13 we'll mention another time, but there are some principles that we've seen here. God sends missionaries. Missions means sending, and it means going. Wasn't it William Carey? who said, I will go if you hold the rope. (laughs) There are some of us who go, there are others of us who through prayer and support hold the rope, but it's all part of the same mission. Missions will be opposed. Missionaries and pastors sometimes must denounce those who oppose the gospel. We're not encouraging a denunciatory spirit, but sometimes we must be faithful in denouncing. God brings the first the, the fruits of missions. The mission of the church is to preach the gospel. That's clear. The call to urgency is clear. The call for zeal for God's glory is clear. But I want to direct my final words to lost people who may hear this sermon this morning or another time. Elymas was treated by God with a warning that only indicated a greater judgment to come. If he did not believe and repent, let us contemplate eternity. We are so busy, maybe we've been slowed down a bit lately, but we are so busy, we fail to contemplate eternity. Even the eternity that is promised to the people of God. We certainly do not see lost people contemplating the eternity that is promised to them if they do not believe and repent. But God works in his judgments and some are astonished and believe. Well, there's something at work in our culture now. All through the world, in the East and in the West, and we all know that it's the coronavirus. We know that we do not live in a chance universe. We know that through it, the Lord is going to extend the great name of His Son. We also know that the Bible teaches us that He's a God of judgment. Those whom He judges, that is in His hands. I cannot know that. That He does judge, I do know. Those whom he saves, that's in his hands. That he does save, that we also know. But my friend Joel Beeky recently said to his congregation, God speaks, of course, in many ways. He speaks to us through his word, this word of redemption. He also speaks in nature very clearly. We have general revelation that is to be interpreted by this special revelation. We have God speaking in the creation, we have God speaking in His Word as our Redeemer, and sometimes He speaks in quiet ways. Sometimes, my friend Joel Beeke said, "God uses a megaphone, and right now He's using a megaphone, and He is crying out to the lost: Prepare to meet Thy God." Now it may well be that some lost person hearing this sermon this morning, it may be that you do not contract this corona virus. That's in the hands of the Lord. God's people need not fear because we are under the value of the blood of Christ and no matter what happens to us, no one can take us out of the hand of of our heavenly Father because we have been saved by the blood of Jesus. But unbeliever, in. God's name, I call upon every lost person who hears my voice to immediately surrender to Christ, to immediately heed the call of the gospel, to immediately believe in Christ and repent of your sins. No longer to live for yourself, but to live for Him, because death is still the same as it was In Paul's day. Eternity is still the same. The soul is still the same. Our hearts need are still the same. The brevity of life is still the same. The gospel that presents to us the way to be saved is still the same. The blood of Jesus is still the same. The gospel call is still the same, the blood of Christ is still sufficient to save sinners no matter who you are or what your sins have been. Just as then, all of these truths are the same. I was reading last night a sermon of Robert Murray McShane on Psalm 11, and McShane closed it in this way. I showed you, I have showed you, that the destruction of the wicked will be sudden. Dear friends, do you think that it will be sudden? The very fact that you can sit so easily shows that you do not believe it. Therefore, when hell comes to you, it will come like a snare. Ah, dear careless soul, think when you go home tonight what if it should be tonight? This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Careless sinner, what would become of you if God were to shoot his darts and rain snares, fire and brimstone upon you? Tell me sinner, would it not embitter your eternity to think that you were told of it? Ah, you are like Lot's sons-in-law, he seemed as one that mocked unto them. Do you think they thought it a dream when they lifted up their eyes in hell? Ah, no, sinner, will it not embitter your eternity to think you had been warned to flee? The minister is free from my blood. I was warned, but I heeded not. I am the cause of my own undoing. My hands have made the snare wherewith I am caught. May the Lord give to us believers in the Lord Jesus Christ such gratitude that his sovereign grace has saved us from our sins, that we long for others also to hear this gospel message and be saved. May the word that goes forth from this pulpit this morning be used of him to awaken those who are cold and careless to the gospel, For without this gospel, you will be lost forever. Believing in this Christ, you will be saved and would be able to say with Paul the apostle, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have delivered unto him against that day. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen and amen.